Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm Mike Siegel, and this is Texas from the Ground Up, a weekly show about Texas politics and progressive political movements in this great state. This week, we are discussing the issue of climate change. Coming up, a conversation with Dr. Michael Weber, one of the foremost minds in Texas on climate science, especially as it impacts the economy. But first, kicking off this week's show is a conversation with the wonderful Zanen Jaimes Perez. Zanen has worked on issues ranging from voting rights to immigrant justice to LGBTQIA equality and is now the managing director of Move Texas, one of the largest and fastest growing advocacy organizations in our state. Zanen Jaimes Perez, thank you so much for joining us. Hi Mike, thank you so much for having me. Right on, well thank you. Um, and today, Zanen, we are broadcasting from Houston, the international epicenter of the oil and gas industry. And this is a place that has been built by the exploitation of fossil fuels and that depends on the fossil fuel economy. So I couldn't think of a more important place for us to be talking about climate change and fossil fuels and what is to be done than here in the Bayou City. And I know that Move Texas is supporting work in Houston in part through SEER, the Coalition for Environment, Equality and Resilience. So why did Move Texas decide to join this climate justice work in Houston and what do you hope to accomplish? Yeah, Mike, thank you so much for that overview. I think exactly what you said. And like we also see that the impacts with climate change, as well as the environmental issues that we're facing in Houston, are not impacting all Houston communities equally, right? You mentioned Deer Park, you mentioned Pasadena, and you mentioned many of the parts of Houston and Harris County, and also the Bay Area that um, across the Gulf Coast and Texas are actually more disproportionately impacting communities of color, especially um, Latinx communities in Pasadena, Black communities in the Northeast area of Houston and in Harris County. And so I think as we're looking at the overall impacts of this um, environmental catastrophe really that we're facing, we also need to acknowledge that they're not impacting everyone equally and that that's something that needs to be foundational as we approach this area of the work, especially as you mentioned, right? Like why did Move Texas, which is an organization that we've seen as like really taking the lead in voting rights issues in Texas, like why are we in this space? Why are we in Houston? And why are we organizing with uh, Northeast Houston communities on this? And it's precisely because our generation and the young people that we work for, we're, work with and for are calling us to do that, right? So above and like more than any other issue and more than any other thing that we really talk to our base about is that this is one of the primary concerns. And unfortunately, that's not reflected generationally across the board, right? Because I think that there's some misinformation happening on that. But for MOVE, it was especially important to really dive into this is because this is an existential threat, not just in 30 to 40 years that we're all estimating, but it's an existential threat happening right now. Right? Like we have many friends and community members who live in Northeast Houston, who live in Pasadena, who are already facing the impacts of climate change, as well as the environmental um, disasters that have happened um, right now, right, through Hurricane Harvey, but also in the day-to-day -day existence of living in communities with the highest levels of asthma, contamination, as well as threats and risks of fire, train explosions, chemical explosions, all of these things that I think on some level, um, we have gotten desensitized to them, but um, you know they're impacting us every every day. And so for us, it was important that as we're thinking about what does change look like and what does immediate change look like, is that it's important and foundational that young people, especially young people of color, are in the room when these decisions are being made, right? And so one of the things that we're seeing is that um, since since the Trump administration pulled us out of the Paris Accords and some, went back on some of the things that were happening I, that I would argue not enough during the Obama administration, we took 10 steps back during the Trump admin. Fortunately, 
there has been political change in Texas, right? We could argue and talk about whether that has been quick enough or not, right? Or if it's been bold enough. But I do think that where we're seeing now is that especially in Harris County and Houston and in other parts of Texas, right? Like, and one of the responses that happened from the pullout of the Paris Accords was that many cities and counties actually move forward with their own climate action plans. Um, were they bold enough? I, you know, I think that that remains to be seen, but over the last couple of years, especially the last two years, we've worked in San Antonio and Houston and Austin um, specifically, and hopefully expanding that even further to ensure that climate action plans really are sort of pushing forward, even if they're not the ideal of what we want. But one of the frameworks as we approach the climate action plans locally and through cities and county work is that it can't just be led by the same interests who contributed and led to that pollution and that climate change in the beginning, right? And they have a vested interest, especially in Houston, to you know be the ones leading the charge on the implementation of the climate action plan and for us it's like no the people who actually need to be in the committees need to be testifying and need to be asked their opinion as all of this is happening are the people in those communities and so we work with seer as well as other organizations in houston and san antonio to be like okay well what does actual canvassing look like really like how does it look like when we door knock on someone and ask them what do you feel about these issues and by and large you know several of our organizers tell us that like I think oftentimes we don't see the agency of people who are living in these communities to talk about the issues facing them because we think, oh, well, it's energy and like all these things are like at the global level. But really, when we even just start with the conversation of like, what do you think of the environment around you, right? Like, and what do you see? You automatically already start seeing several of the things that we're going to be talking about today already present in the minds of working class communities in these neighborhoods who are pointing out these things and quite frankly have been pointing them out for several years just have been ignored in the long range and so our job is to step in use our platform use our youth organizing work our base our membership to really insert ourselves into those um, public policy conversations and say you have to listen to us it's you cannot listen to the folks that caused this problem in the from the first place this is mike siegel host of texas from the ground up and today we are speaking with zanen jaimes perez Managing Director of Move Texas. And Zanen, some of our listeners may not be aware that Houston has a climate action plan. You know, this was launched by Mayor Sylvester Turner on Earth Day 2020. The city of Houston announced, quote, a science-based, community-driven Houston climate action plan to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, meet the Paris Agreement goal of carbon neutrality, and lead the global energy transition. And I know that some climate activists, environmental activists, were feeling optimistic when this plan was put together, that finally Houston would take the lead on climate justice, and in particular to help Texas, the United States, the world, to chart a just transition to renewable energy. And I think this is one of the most important policy challenges for the climate justice movement. How do we get from where we are now to a more sustainable future without making workers and working class people suffer? Because a mom or dad working at a refinery shouldn't have to lose their income or their home or their health care so we can get out from under a dirty energy economy. That's why we need a just transition. It needs to be the government's responsibility to take care of people as we close coal plants and open wind farms to make sure oil and gas workers don't suffer in the process. So some of us were optimistic when there was a Houston Climate Action Plan announced. But then, two months after the climate plan was announced, we learned the work was going to be paid for with $2 million from British Petroleum, an international energy company. 
And more specifically, that BP representatives and other fossil fuel corporation representatives would be integrated into the working groups you're discussing to fulfill the climate action plan. And so this has caused a fair amount of doubt and skepticism. Can we really chart a transition away from fossil fuels when a massive multi-billion dollar fossil fuel company is paying for the work? Yeah, well, the short answer to your question is no, it's not going to be possible to chart a just transition if that's the framework we're adopting, right? And yeah, it, I think a lot of people were surprised when seeing like, oh, Houston has a climate action plan, like, because I think nationally and globally, right, it's seen as like the energy capital, but in a lot of ways, Houston is a lot more than just that. And also just pointing out, right, like Harris County itself also has a climate action plan that has also been adopted. So one of the good things, at least from my perspective, as we're seeing these little, little a change in like the thinking of this over the last year or two years, which, you know, is really new. Unfortunately, it should have been happening 20 years ago, 30 years ago, but this is where we are now. So Harris County and Houston have at least coordinated on some level that I think is important, especially given the context of politics in Texas, right, where, yes, cities are going to be very important in this transition, but really the purse strings that we're really seeing and like the actual ability to affect longer term and more impactful change are going to be at is going to be at the county level. Um, I think a lot of folks misunderstand that point, right, of like how much power counties actually have to implement all of these things and like actually talk about this. And so going back to your question about the just transition, and this is the point at least I make with our friends nationally and also internationally is that if you really want to see the Green New Deal and the principles of the Green New Deal framework adopted nationally and pushed forward as policy nationally, it will not be possible unless Texas and specifically Houston are a part of leading the charge on that, right? And for all of the reasons that you talked about, that this is the energy capital of the country, this is where we see the refineries, this is where we see shipping, this is where we see all of the effects of a coal economy or like a fossil fuel economy are really being driven by our Gulf Coast. And that, of course, means that jobs, especially for working class people, are centered around those aspects. And so this is sort of why it's so important for us as we approach this work that we do it in a sense of what does it look like to transform an economy from one that's fossil fuel driven to one that's community led. And we insert the principles of energy democracy into this just transition. And speaking from my own perspective, right, of having grown up here from an immigrant family in Texas, I know and I have several family members and several friends who currently right now are working on refineries up along the Gulf Coast. And to me, it's a really big difference, right, when I have to have a conversation with someone about, yo, we need to start thinking about 20, 30 years from now. And what my 22 year old cousin who was, went to an underserved school, an underserved high school, didn't graduate high school, has an option of either working a retail or fast food job that'll pay them $11 an hour, or we'll pay them $50 an hour to work a dangerous job in a refinery. So unless we start the conversation there, we're not gonna get to where we need to start ha having like visionary conversations of like, okay, well, let's have a conversation of why isn't it the case that you can find a job installing a, a solar farm or a wind farm in your community, or even, even cleanup jobs in your community that are well-paying jobs. Right. And that's going to have to be led by community members on the ground, not by groups like BP or other folks who have a vested interest in not just continuing the fossil fuel economy, but then also wanting to capture the benefits of this transition that we're looking for. This, when we say just transition, it doesn't mean more money to line the pocketbooks of the energy companies that cause this problem to begin with. 
what it means for us in a just transition is that as we're shifting away from the fossil fuel economy, we're also shifting away from um, the idea that the only way we can have like the lights on, the only way that we can like enjoy the modern amenities that we have will be possible through these huge multi-billion dollar corporations. And we're seeing many of these projects, at least from my perspective, um, one of the benefits of the Houston Climate Action Plan is that it has led to some um, local community projects, including in Northeast Houston, one of the largest solar farms ever created in the United States, was being built in a brownout site um, in Northeast Houston that you know, I think was partnered with Sierra and other organizations. And so those are the types of projects that we need to see more of. But unfortunately, we're not seeing them quick enough or at the scale of what we need to see them at to really realize the just transition that we're talking about here. And unless we really light the fire under that, we're not going to be able to meet the targets of that climate action plan that were adopted, much less for Houston, but also nationally. So yeah, I reiterate to anyone listening outside of Houston and other parts of Texas and also nationally, if you really want to see the Green New Deal, it has to come through Houston and it has to come through Texas. Today on Texas from the Ground Up, we are speaking with Zanen Jaimes Perez. Zanen, one challenge with working on climate issues is that everything is connected. This can be a positive in some ways. For example, protecting our planet is important no matter where we live, and all of us should get involved. But once you get into the nitty-gritty details, especially in Texas, organizing can get complicated very quickly. For example, the idea of closing coal plants. Many of us would love to know that when we turn on our lights, we're not contributing to pollution and climate change. But if we want to organize in Houston against dirty coal power or for clean energy, it becomes very complicated because the companies that provide electricity in Houston actually generate their electricity outside of Houston. So if you pay your electric bill to rely on energy and their corporate owner, NRG, has a coal plant in Jewett, Texas, and the Jewett plant is getting its coal from a huge mine in Wyoming that is shipped by rail, there's not a lot you can do to get cleaner energy as an individual resident in Houston. You can't call your city council member or mayor because they don't have the authority over the coal plant or the energy corporation. Even your state representatives or state senators or even members of Congress probably can't do much individually because the regulation of private energy generation in Texas is largely controlled by state entities like ERCOT or the Public Utilities Commission or the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality. And the leaders of those entities are appointed by the governor. So long story short, if you live in Houston and want to turn on your lights with clean power, well, if you know Greg Abbott, maybe he can help you but otherwise you might be out of luck. It's a little different situation in other cities in Texas, however, that have municipally owned utilities. In Austin, for example, the city owns and operates Austin Energy, and so residents there have a little more power to lobby local officials and fight for environmental protections. And also in San Antonio, some people are aware, there's a municipal energy utility called CPS Energy that provides electricity in that region. And in San Antonio, there is a grassroots movement to get more involved in the management of that utility. Some of these people are organizing to close uh, another nearby coal plant, and they've started a movement, Recall CPS Energy, to reassert local control. And I understand that Move Texas is also part of that. And so if you could maybe help us bridge the gap, how is your work in Houston connected to your work in San Antonio? And what do you hope to accomplish through this Recall CPS movement? Yeah, thank you. And thank you for making those connections, right? And I think this is at the core of what our understanding of democracy and voting rights is, right? Because when we say, 
we need to ensure that everyone can participate in the decisions that affect their lives. That includes elections, of course, very important. And that's connected to the work that we did on SB1 that we're doing on redistricting and ensuring that people can access the ballot box. But it's also connected to the idea that at its basic level, whether you can vote or not, you should have the ability to influence and say have your say in the things that affect your life. And this is one of the biggest things that affects your day-to-day -day existence, right? And so one of the things that of the, the tragedy of the winter storm that happened in February is that I think for the first time, millions of Texans understood that the lie and really the farce that we have painted ourselves to be the energy state, right? That like, oh, the brownouts in California are happening over there. Like the lights are going out in New York, but here in Texas, we're fine because we have created an energy economy that is at the forefront of the world and our fossil fuel um, energy is going to keep the lights on. And then what we saw with Winter Storm Uri, which was in, in a lot of ways, I think, still being investigated and still being researched. But some of the science is pointing to the fact that the winter storm was really uh, ca not caused, but had had some of the effects were happened because of, of the temperature changes that we're seeing through climate change that intensified the, the cold and also just the the length of the storm. And so really it kind of chipped at the armor that the governor had really been building and like not just Governor Abbott, but also several administrations, including Democratic administrations, had built up this idea of Texas is going to be fine because of who we are and like our energy economy led by Houston. And for the first time, folks saw that it was a lie, right? Not just because of PUC, not just because of the grid, not just because of these things, but that the ability for us to sustain this modern economy through fossil fuel energy is really tenuous to the point that now anytime that we get warnings on like, hey, we might have some blackouts because of overcapacity or any of these things, especially over the summer, right? I remember in June when we were facing the prospect of a really hot summer, I remember when ERCOT released a warning saying like, hey, y'all, we're going to need y'all to lower, <laughs> lower your air conditioner, right? Maybe keep it at 78. And what our folks saw is like, what the hell? Like, hell no, right? Like we were told that if we pay our rates, if we do this, if we do, if we do that, that we weren't going to face these things. And y'all told us that we were the energy capital of the world. And how is this happening, right? And fortunately, I guess we didn't see any of those big effects over the summer, but I think it really did kind of like leave that kernel of doubt in people's minds and really started asking, allowing folks to really ask questions about, if this is what we were told Texas was, how is it possible that a little bit of a heat wave of which we faced several heat waves before can lead to these catastrophic effects? And so like communities in Houston, right? Like there's this feeling of like, whenever it rains, whenever there's a tropical storm coming, whenever there's a, a heat front coming or a cold front coming, this is the climate anxiety that is now being induced in our communities. And especially for folks that I know, whenever it rains in Houston, I have a lot of folks who have some level of PTSD, right? And similarly, whenever there's an air cut alert. And unfortunately, we don't want our communities to be living like that, but I also think it allows us to have a deep conversation about what are the structures that allow this to even happen. And going back to what you, your initial question about the public utilities, right? I think one of the things that we really need to do is really show our communities, where does your power come from? Right. And who regulates it, even at the most local level? Because if folks, I think folks now understand ERCOP, but folks don't understand that CPS energy on, at, at its core is supposed to be regulated and has, and the San Antonio City Council has 
oversight over it, right? They have five elected uh, board members, five board members who are part of the board of CPS Energy who are appointed by the city council of San Antonio. Unfortunately, I think because of the influence of money in politics and just the influence of corporate power in local politics, several of the board members who have been present at CPS Energy have not been reflective of the true needs and true desires of the communities there. And so in October, there's actually an opportunity to get more folks into the CPS Board of Energy, including someone who I think would be an excellent addition, Dr. Adelita Cantu, who has spent decades of her work and her time really thinking about what does climate justice look like in these communities? What does public health look like in our communities? And really done deep studies to look at the spruce power, the spruce coal plant in San Antonio having one of the largest, um, being one of the largest emitters of greenhouse gases, not just in San Antonio, but in, in all of Texas. And that, spruce, and that coal plant being located in some of the most underserved, underdeveloped, lowest income communities in San Antonio is not a coincidence, right? And so several of the things that we're gonna be facing in San Antonio specifically, but also I would argue in several communities across the state are disconnections for 72,000 people who have not been able to pay their energy bills um, in San Antonio because of the pandemic, because of the employment crisis, and because of the eviction crisis. We're facing on the next coming months, 72,000 energy customers facing cutoffs, right? And these are communities who are already being underserved. We're facing rate increases for folks. And even those rate increases not being equal because a business who uses 10 times more um, energy than a, a single family home in San Antonio are paying the same rate. And our question is why? Why are the costs of an energy transition or the costs of running this, um, um, the utility, why are they equal when it's a, a business with multiple 10 warehouses across the city versus a single family home? And then also really thinking about resource planning, right? Like the Spruce coal plant was retrofitted in, I believe in 2008. We already knew what the effects of climate change and what it was going to look like in the next 20, 30 years in 2008. So why did the CPS, um, Energy Board, CPS Energy Board decide to spend millions of dollars in retrofitting that spruce coal plant when we knew that we were in the direction of closing down many of these plants? And so those are the questions and those are the conversations that we need to be having at the public utility level. Unfortunately, I think because of that corporate power, we haven't been able to, but thanks to the uh, recall CPS energy, as well as the climate action San Antonio, we've been able to really bring those conversations to the forefront, at least in San Antonio. And hopefully we can bring those in other places where we have uh, public utilities. I think the big question is gonna be, how do we do that same level of organizing in places like Houston, where we have multiple different energy companies providing energy for millions of communities across the city. And I think that's where we're gonna have to be more creative and really marry the work that we do, at least at the city and local level, with also ways and strategies to hold corporations accountable and not just corporations, but the politicians that enable them locally to continue behaving in the way that they're behaving. This is Texas from the ground up and I'm your host, Mike Siegel. Today, we're talking about the movements for climate justice in Texas with the managing director of Move Texas, Zanen Jaimes Perez. Uh, Zanen, earlier I asked you about one of the challenges of organizing on climate change, namely that it's sometimes hard to organize locally because even if you have a strong climate change organization in your city and want to make changes, the targets for organizing are often outside our communities. So you might be in Houston, but your power comes from a coal plant 
several counties to the north, and the plant is stocked with coal brought by rail from several states away, and the shareholders from the corporation are, frankly, around the world. And there are other challenges to organizing on this issue as well, and one of them is what I'll call the back burner problem. And you can probably guess what I mean. So we might be organizing around the Houston Climate Action Plan or about changing the governance of CPS Energy in San Antonio, but then an emergency comes up. The Texas legislature, for example, might want to take away our right to vote. So we have to mobilize on that issue. We raise money, we make calls, we file lawsuits, we go to the Capitol in Austin to testify. And then two weeks after that, the state of Texas makes abortion illegal. So we have to organize on that, make sure there's funding for people who need to travel to get reproductive care. We have to get our legal team ready again. We have to lobby Congress and the president. And after that, it's an immigration crisis. Uh, maybe it's conservative Democrats saying they won't support immigration reform in the next major bill in Congress. It seems like we're going from one emergency to the next, one crisis to the next. And while we're putting out these fires, both literally and figuratively, global warming marches on, climate change marches on. And because we don't make progress on climate because of these other crises, the facts on the ground are getting even worse because we haven't implemented the renewable energy future yet. In the meantime, the federal government just approved 80 more drilling permits. The state of Texas just approved another gas-fired power plant. So this is not an easy question, but as an organizer, as someone who frankly directs a team of organizers at Move Texas, how do you balance the emergency of the moment with these longer term struggles on issues like climate change or criminal justice reform? How do we make sure we're making progress on these essential issues while also staying present in the day-to-day -day issues that affect everyday Texans? Ooh, when you say it like that, <laughs> right, it's hard to get people to sort of understand, like, how can we work on all these things all at the same time? And I think one of the things that we talked at least internally on the team and also in previous places where I've been at is that this is the importance of going back to basics, right? So one of the things that we're confronted on, if, if we're thinking about going back to basics of being an organizer, one organizer 101, right, is understanding the power map of what we're facing. And the fact that we're facing all of these crises and all of the issue areas that are important for us across the board, both locally, statewide, and nationally, is by design, right? So in addition to the work that we're doing as we're thinking about where, what are the levers of power that we can push on and pull and press at all moments to deliver wins for our communities, our opposition is doing the same. And oftentimes, one of the things that I think a lot about is that, especially in social movements that we work on here in Texas, is that we often don't think about, well, what's the governor thinking? What's the state legislator thinking? What are they thinking about as they're pushing forward their agenda in opposition to ours? And so if we can start with that conversation of like the fact that they're pushing on all of these crises and all of the issue areas that we're working on is by design because they want to catch us off our toes, right? Because if they think that we're going to be in crisis response mode the whole time, then that allows them to one, at the most fundamental level, tire us out. Second of all, when everything is in a priority and emergency, nothing is a priority and emergency. And then the third thing about that is that it balkanizes our social movements to be competing with each other instead of looking at the long-term arc. So if we start with the question of what's the governor trying to do and how can we resist some of those pieces collectively, then we can start having a conversation of moving away from reaction mode and rapid response to building like long-term thinking about where we want to take all of these movements and all of these fights together. And so to give a concrete example of that with recall CPS, right? That coalition and that area of work, MOVE is a part of it, but we're not the only ones. We're working with Public Citizen, 
We're working with local community groups in San Antonio, and we spent an intentional amount of time having conversations with organizers, with community members and other folks in those movements and in those fights to say, look, you might have a different fight. You might have a different priority. You might have different funders. You might have different interests happening here, but we are aligned with this common idea and this common goal. And so if we start building coalitions and building work across organizations, across social movements, from that intentional conversation, we can design coalitions and we can design programs that can be bulwarks to what the governor's strategy is against us. So if you look at Recall CPS, and you can go to the website, recallcps.org, you can see many of the different coalition members that are part of it are not actually just climate groups, right? There's worker rights groups. There's local community democracy groups, there's youth organizing groups, and there are environmental groups in that. But we designed and our intention is to design coalitions that can look at the whole picture from the top and then prescribe where we can respond and where can we respond strategically. And part of this too, and just to name it, right, is that the last two years of working and doing organizing work under the pandemic have been extraordinarily difficult for everyone who's working from both who have had 20, 30 years of organizing experience to those who are just starting off. Because I think part of that, what's happened is that Zoom has been helpful for many, many things, but it's also burnt a lot of people out. So when I say go back to basics, I mean, let's look at the power map. Let's go back to organizing 101 trainings. Let's go to base building. Let's build intentional coalitions. And one, let's build relationships with each other. Because if I don't know an organizer who's fighting for abortion rights and abortion justice at the ledge, who might also be interested in fighting for climate justice, then we're never going to be able to even have a conversation so that we can strategize together. So part of what MOVE is trying to do is build those intentional coalitions and build those relationships across the state so that even if it's a crisis happening in Houston, Houston isn't going at it alone. And we see this strategy happening with the governor who have, has employed this for several years, right? And I think um, residents of Austin might know this very, very well, right? Where Austin might say, hey, we're going to try to push forward this progressive idea, right? Whether it's on the homeless ordinance, whether it's on um, uh, funding some abortions locally. One of the strategies that the governor, the attorney general, and the lieutenant governor have been able to masterfully employ has been create a crisis around, hey, look at Austin, look at those communists in Austin pushing this thing, right? And like bash them, bash them and get the whole right-wing ecosystem to bash the city of Austin to the point that they're like, okay, it's not worth it. No one's helping us. We put our leg out, we put our head out there and we got kicked. We're just gonna go back, right? And so that's exactly the same thing that happened with this voting right, uh, this voter suppression bill at the ledge in 2020. Harris County was one of the leaders in pushing for democracy reforms locally. And what happened? That specific bill, in a lot of ways, yes, affects the whole state of Texas, but really was targeting Harris County for many of the local reforms that groups like MOVE and other groups helped push. And so they were bullied, they were beaten up. The um, Isabel Longoria was attacked, not just by the governor, but the attorney general and basically lambasted at the legislature, and they were trying to make, be made the pariah. And so as we're looking at that, we're saying, okay, if we really are going to push back against a statewide attack on some of these progressive reforms we're, we're fighting for, 
we need to not just create organizations and links between organizers in these different cities, but we need to sure, ensure that public officials are talking to each other as well, right? So that if Harris County does this, if Judge Hidalgo does, does a progressive thing on voting rights, climate justice, or any of these issues, that they're not going to feel alone when they're inevitably attacked very strongly by the whole right-wing ecosystem, but rather have a community of public officials, a community of organizations, and a community of also national organizations who are going to be there to stand up and defend and be a bulwark against this attack. And I believe that that's the ultimate strategy that is going to lead to transformative change in Texas. This is Texas from the Ground Up, and I'm your host, Mike Siegel. And today we are speaking with the Managing Director of Move Texas, Zanen Jaimez Perez. Uh, Zanen, if you don't mind, I'd like to conclude with a more personal question uh, to learn a little bit about your path to becoming a political leader here in Texas, because this is an important subject in its own right. How do we inspire the next generation of changemakers? And for those of us who follow you on Twitter, we noticed that you're working on a number of serious policy issues like gerrymandering and democracy reform. Your commentary includes topics like reproductive justice in Texas and closing a coal plant in San Antonio. But then you also talk a lot about your family and your mom in particular, including fun stuff like her musical interests and her social life. And so even though this commentary is lighthearted and enjoyable, I get the sense that your family life really does inform your, your political life. And so if you wouldn't mind, please share a little bit about how you arrived at this position as managing director of Move Texas and what inspires your work in the state? Yeah, well, thank you for that question. I wouldn't know I was gonna talk about myself, which is always, always like a hard topic for me, but I, very important, I think for me, as I'm thinking about, you know, I just turned 30 years old. And so when I was growing up, I didn't think that this was something that I could do professionally or even that this was something that could happen, right? And so I actually grew up in Austin, Texas, and we actually got here by kind of a mistake. <laughs> so when my family crossed the border, they actually crossed through Arizona, and we were actually on our way to Georgia. I was going to grow up in Georgia. That was the plan, right? there. My family was going to work at a chicken farm in Georgia. Um, somewhere around New Mexico, we actually ran out of money. And I remember my mom telling me that I was three, four years old. Um, that we stayed on the side of the road of a highway in New Mexico with no money, nowhere to go. And at the time, there was no cell phones, right? This was in 1994. And so one of the things that happened because of our immigration story, and we know that families come in waves, right, is that we actually knew a family friend. Um, her name is Dalia, who grew up, like, who had already come to Austin, right? And she said, hey, just come over here. We'll stay. And we actually stayed in her home for several for several months before we were able to get an apartment. And that was at the time when Austin was still a smaller city, right, before it is now. And you could actually have a working class job and raise a family. Unfortunately, that's no longer possible in the city. But for me, it was really formative because I was able to really see kind of two sides of Austin. Right. I was able to see like the family and the communities where I grew up in, which were mostly working class Mexican immigrant communities who were not part of the white dominant culture of Austin, right? So I didn't grow up going to ACL, South by Southwest. I didn't even go to the Capitol until I went to like a state, like a school trip. And so for me, I think it was really visceral to see like those specific divisions living in one of the most segregated cities in the country. And so very early on, and I think a lot of us have these moments where we realize these things, right? Or see these inequities. And I know this because I talk to young people every day who even though they don't have the right language that I might have or like that social movements use to like as like gatekeeping opportunities or ways to like, to like see if you're down or not, 
folks are talking about this every day in their daily realities. And I think one of the things that for me was important was that I had a mentor who said like, look, what you're talking about, you're not crazy. <laughs> like the things that you're animated about or passionate about, those are things that you can work on. In fact, like I didn't, I didn't even think that voting was important because I didn't grow up in a family that could vote. I was never taken to a ballot box until I was 18 because who was going to take me? My family couldn't vote. And so from that perspective, I think that's when I started to realize, look, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm just going to volunteer for a local group. I actually started volunteering, doing DACA, um, um, DACA renewals and also like doing calls for the DREAM Act at the time and seeing those failures, right? When the DREAM Act failed, when CIR failed, like all of those things really set us back. But the thing that I learned about that was that it's actually less about the policy and less about like the win that you're going to have and more about the relationships that you're building along the way. Because in fighting for to stop someone's deportation, to make calls for the DREAM Act, to fight for DACA, those are the relationships that I built that taught me how to be an organizer. And that was as a volunteer. And thankfully, then through effective mentorship, right, and people who like said like, hey, you can do this and like, get paid for it. I was like, oh, crap. Like, yeah, that's something I can do. So I spent some time um, doing like immigration work, especially in D.C. But I quickly saw, right, like being in the space, right, being someone who was like, I was 23 years old the day I was like, had my first job as a policy analyst for United We Dream. I was told, okay, and my dad had just gotten deported the year before. I remember the second day of work, they said, okay, you're gonna go to ICE headquarters building, the ICE headquarters building, and you're gonna talk about this case that we're trying to stop. And in my mind, I was like, holy fuck, <laughs> like, what do you mean you're gonna take me to the ICE headquarters building? Like. What? Like what? <laughs> but thankfully, right through that sort of like mentorship and through that like conversation and talking, I was able to process that and really be in those spaces. But what I learned about those spaces is that they're not centered on our communities and they're not centered on the experiences that we're facing. And so it was important for me to come back home to Texas, to come back to my community and really think about how are we building long-term power? Because to me, it's not a win if we stop the voter suppression. It, it is a win, right? It is a win. But the ultimate long-term arc here is that we have to start affecting change at every sector of society, right? So for Move Texas, yes, we're gonna be protesting, we're gonna be testifying, we're gonna be bird-dogging politicians, all of those things are important. But the importance of how we measure our success is how many young people testified for the first time ever in their life? And what was their experience like? What is the power that they felt? And how are they gonna continue? So for me, my metrics of success with my team is I don't want 100 testimonies. I want 100 testimonies, but then I want you to tell me how many of them became members and how many of them are going to continue down our pipeline. And then once they're done with move, once they're like, hey, I graduated or like, hey, I'm ready to move on, whether you decide to stay in social movements and nonprofits, at move at uh, ground game at any of these organizations, it doesn't really matter. But what I want you to leave with is a framework of understanding of how politics and how social movements work. So whether you stay in nonprofits or go to media, law, uh, business, any other sector of society, you can take that framework and push there. Because it's not enough for us to just be at the Capitol. We have to be in all of these spaces. And we have to help young people really be in those spaces and know how to push the levers and pull the levers of power wherever they are so that they can affect the progressive change that they want. Listening to Zanen. Hi, Ms. Perez, Managing Director of Move Texas. Zanen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you.
That's Swimwear Department of Houston. Proud H-Town residents just like Zanin Jaimez Perez of Move Texas. Our first guest this week on Texas from the Ground Up. I'm Mike Siegel, and it's time for our next conversation with my co-host, Julie Oliver. This time, it's Dr. Michael Weber, one of our state's foremost experts on clean energy and what it's going to take to transform Texas from an antiquated petrochemical holdout to a true green energy leader. Here's Julie. Well, today we are joined by Dr. Michael Weber, um, and I'm, I want to read your bio because it really is impressive. And normally when I ask for somebody for a bio, they give me a couple a couple sentences that kind of lets people know where they're coming from, what their experience is. But yours really is so incredibly impressive. And I'm also going to let listeners know that you and I connected when I was running for Congress, and you sent me a number of fascinating articles that um, either colleagues of yours had authored or you had authored about what moving to a renewable energy economy in Texas would do for our economy, truly what it would do for our economy. So I'm going to start real quick by reading your um, bio, and then I'm going to let you speak. <laughs> but Dr. Michael Weber joins us today. You are the Josie Centennial Professor in Energy Resources at the University of Texas at Austin and the CTO of Energy Impact Partners, which is a $1.5 billion clean tech venture fund. From September of 2018 to August of 2021, you were based in Paris. So I'm guessing that's where you might be now. I'm back in Austin, Texas. So I'm in Austin okay. now. Well, you're in my, you were in my favorite city, Paris, France, where you served as the chief science and technology officer with ENGIE, a global energy and infrastructure services company. Your ex expertise spans research and education at the convergence of engineering policy and commercialization on topics related to innovation, energy, and environment. And if you want to read more of Dr. Weber's works, he published a book a couple years ago called Power Trip, The Story of Energy, which was then turned into an award-winning six-part uh, companion series on PBS. And you can find it on PBS, Amazon Prime, iTunes, uh, starting on Earth Day of 2020. That's so apropos. Um, so thank you so much. And I know there's so much more I could have read about you. You got your uh, undergrad and your uh, master's at University of Texas at Austin. You went on to complete, or actually two undergrads at UT Austin. And then you went on to get your graduate and PhD at Stanford University, which is my mother-in-law's alma mater. So again, welcome. That was a mouthful, but I really want people to get a sense for who I'm talking to because I feel really, really privileged and honored that you would share your brain trust with us today. Well, I appreciate the kind introduction. You read it, read my bio just like my mom wrote it, so that's perfect, and I'm happy to be part of this conversation. Well, grateful for you to be here. For, I have a really important question I want to ask you, first of all. Is it true that New Jersey is the solar power capital of the United States? It is no longer true, but it was for a while. And uh, New Jersey used policy to become an early adopter of solar power as a way to reduce costs, as a way to reduce emissions, as a way to get some local generation rather than depending on out-of-state sources for everything. And it always kind of frustrated me that a small, cloudy northern state would be a leader on solar compared to Texas, which is a large, sunny state. And California was uh, the leader for a long time and has been and still is. And Texas has gone from nowhere close to the top 10 solar states in terms of installed generating capacity to now number two behind California. And we might pass California within a year on industrial scale solar. And then we might catch them on rooftop solar at some point as well. So Texas has gone kind of from nowhere on solar to now number two in the nation. And that's a reminder that Texas, when it moves on energy, can move at large scale, really at global scale. 
And so we've passed New Jersey now, which is good. It really it was always kind of offensive. So I'm glad we're there right. at the top. Yeah. I'm glad I'm not alone in finding it offensive. Um, and I will say this might be one of those areas where somebody says, don't California, my Texas. We actually do want a California or Texas when it comes to renewable energy and solar. Well, the way I say it is don't West Virginia, my Texas, which is don't cling okay, to go. a legacy of the past that causes you to bankrupt the economy and inhibit career pathways for people and leave you left in the dust. And there are a lot of people that really want to keep Texas frozen in time based on what we did to become a powerhouse instead of preparing us for the future. And I feel like right now the, the political leadership in Texas is really more interested in protecting the legacy of the past instead of preparing for the future. And that's really the problem that West Virginia did. It didn't evolve really with its industrial makeup, it got left behind. And it's a real problem. It's really not fair to the people either to be sold this idea that coal mining will be around forever. And as a society, they didn't adjust. It's really problematic. I don't want that to happen to Texas. I want us to be leaders, and we are leaders now, but I want us to retain our leadership. And there are a lot of other places in the world that would like to capture that leadership on energy, certainly California, but also London and Singapore and other places. And we can't just take it for granted that because we've been an energy leader for a few decades that we will be a few decades from now. So that's kind of the fear in my mind. The good news is there's an opportunity, which is if we retain our leadership, we'll make a lot of money and we'll clean up the environment at the same time. Like it's a huge economic opportunity for Texas to take the mantle of energy leadership on this sort of cleaner future as well. Well, that's what I want to talk to you about primarily today. I mean, we can touch on a, a number of other things, but I did want to get it out of the way that New Jersey doesn't hold that. Although I think a lot of people think it still holds that title, but um, we sure do have a lot of sunshine here in Texas. Um, El Paso is one of the sunniest cities in the United States. So I think that we are ripe for opportunity to, to overtake California um, when it comes to solar generation and, and powering our grid. I do want to talk to you about the grid as well, but let's talk about the economy first. What does it mean to Texas and, and our economy? And specifically, what does it mean to rural Texas and, and rural Texas's economy? Do, the way the low carbon future will play out, it will depend on these low carbon source of energy. So wind and solar are obvious winners, but geothermal energy could be offshore energy, like offshore wind and solar are big opportunities. Batteries are a big opportunity, but also things like hydrogen and also carbon capture and sequestration. These are all important elements of a low carbon future. And these are all things that Texas should and could lead on. And much of it, and most of it even, is in rural locations. So a lot of this is out in these places that aren't urban areas, especially the wind and solar, some of the geothermal locations. The hydrogen could be made in West Texas, the Panhandle, or could be made on the Gulf Coast. So some of it has sort of coastal benefit as well as these rural areas. And, and I think this is a good news story because a lot of rural areas have lost a lot of um, economic opportunities over the decades for a variety of reasons of depopulation. People move to the cities because that's where the jobs are. And so if we do more energy production in these rural areas, it reclaims the economic opportunities and keeps the populations vibrant and people move back out there. It also improves the tax bases and the receipts for the local governments. So the counties can reinvest in the schools and the courthouses and the things you need just for a civil society. So it's mostly a rural play. And I think that's interesting because it gives an opportunity for bipartisanship where Urban Democrats or progressive and liberals who really want low carbon energy sources can team up with rural Republicans who want the economic opportunity in their districts. And so this is why Republicans and Democrats came together over a decade ago for CRES, the Competitive Renewable Energy Zone Lines, to build transmission lines from West Texas to load centers like Houston. So we've had this bipartisanship in Texas before, and it was really good for the environment and the economy. And I think there's still that opportunity for us to do it again. I think there is as well. And I, and I you know, when I did campaign, I had, you know, 13 counties total, but most of them were rural. 
And many of them, I mean, they were struggling to find that tax base so that they could, you know, provide education to the students who were there or provide, you know, healthcare services and attract and retain doctors and nurses. And that's so important to um, a rural economy. And this is just such, for me, a no brainer um, that you could be talking about millions of dollars of, of revenue for, for counties annually. Um, and it doesn't deplete. So the oil and gas revenues, though very lucrative for Texas for a long time, will deplete over time, which is a challenge, but also exposed to the, this global commodity price boom-bust cycle, which is very difficult for a community to go through that kind of economic wish, whiplash where you have a boom for a couple of years and wages are higher and then you have a bust and then the jobs disappear. And what we find with renewables is they don't deplete. So the wind that's there this year will be there 30 years from now and that kind of thing. But also the prices are more stable. So the whole sector is a little more predictable. And that's much easier for society to accommodate and plan for and plan around. So I think there are these other elements to the low carbon future that will be just easier to manage and anticipate. Well, and I want to talk real quick about the grid, because I think a lot of people are still very, very nervous. You know, it wasn't that long ago we were suffering through a, a winter storm the entire state. And unlike anything in my lifetime, for sure. And in fact, I got a question last night, what do I do? And I was like, well, go stock up on water and some non-perishable food and some blankets. I don't know what's going to happen. What, you know, um, I know we heard a lot of rhetoric around renewables when it came to the grid and, um, the f you know, the failure of, of us to maintain energy across the state. But can you maybe clear up some of the misconception around renewables and what that would mean if we encounter another winter storm? Yeah, and the, the winter storm in February was tough. And we had a winter storm a decade before, also in February in 2011. That was the Groundhog Day event. And then we had the Valentine's Day event. But both were in February of 2011 and 2021. And they had a different nature, but some similarities. The similarities were it was really cold. The natural gas system froze up. Coal piles froze up. And then there was a strain on the grid where demand was very high because we needed electricity for heating our homes, but supply was constrained. 2011 was a very dry, windy event. 2021 was a very wet, almost windless event. So that affected wind performance. Um, we'll say in 2011, wind overperformed, did a lot more than we expected. In 2021, wind did less than we expected. Uh, solar also did less than we expected. Nukes did a lot less than we expected. Nukes are pretty robust, but we had one of our four nuclear reactors trip offline. Coal plants failed in spectacular fashion where we had coal piles, coal piles freeze, but the water for cooling froze and the power plants froze. But the biggest failure of all was actually the natural gas system. We had natural gas power plants freeze because of frozen equipment, but the bigger problem actually was the natural gas supply itself froze up. When you produce oil and gas, the liquids come out of the ground with water and that water will freeze and causes freezing at the well, seals off the well, that's called a freeze off. And you either get freezing at the well with a freeze off or in the gathering equipment or processing equipment or the pipelines. And that started to happen February 10th. So February 10th, the gas system started to fail and freeze up. Five days later, the, the grid froze up. And the wind really was fine for those first four days. It was the 15th of February when the gas system was frozen badly and failing badly and it became less windy. The two combined was too difficult for the grid to accommodate. So I like to say that all five of the major fuels in Texas underperformed. The only overperformer was hydroelectric, a form of renewables. But we have so little hydroelectric in Texas, it went from 200 megawatts to 400 megawatts. That's not enough to save the grid the way it might be, say, in the Pacific Northwest or someplace like that or Canada. So we had failures across the system. But if you look at what ERCOT expects from extreme weather, 
wind and solar actually overperformed compared to extreme weather scenario, natural gas failed under every expected scenario. The natural gas system froze up and the natural gas power plant struggled. And the power plants that were winterized that could have operated couldn't get the gas they needed. And this is very important because the gas system failed first by several days and is essentially like the proximal root cause of the event in many ways because once you lose a lot of power plants because you can't get gas, that turns off the power. It turns off the power to the gas system, which makes the gas problem bigger, which makes the power problem bigger. You get this kind of cascading failure. And what happened when this was all happening is in the days leading up to it, the fossil fuel industry, the gas industry, with its paid PR program, which includes a lot of politicians who are on the take from them, they started to bash renewables before the event even happened February 15th. And then when we're in the crisis and there are 700 people dying and people are at risk of death, and it's very dangerous and uncomfortable for a lot of reasons, and there's like 100 to $200 billion of economic damage, you had the governor, the lieutenant governor, you had the senator, one of the senators, some elected officials, the railroad commission all going on TV and saying it's the fault of the Green New Deal or renewables or wind or this kind of thing, failing to admit or acknowledge all the problems of the gas system. This is inherently dishonest, right, to say things that are not factually true or, or to leave out critical parts of the story. So in my analysis and others' analysis, the gas system was the most spectacular failure and the first failure, though renewables don't have a lot to be proud of either. But if, uh, if gas had performed the way it should have, we wouldn't have had the problems. And that's the way it comes down to. To put some numbers on it, half our power generation is from gas, 20% from coal, 20% from wind, 10% from nukes, that kind of thing. And so the thermal power plants, which is nuclear, coal, and gas, is 80% of our power generation. Fossil fuels were 70% of our fossil fuel generation. So to say that the 20%, the renewables, that they brought the grid down, but not the 70%, that's kind of ridiculous. Like, that just doesn't add up. And so I think there's a lot of dishonesty around that. But you know why they're saying it, which is to protect certain industries or protect certain interests. And it doesn't help because it means we're not going to prepare for the next event. That's the challenge we have. So I think renewables could have, should have done better. And I, I say that to them. But in the process of not performing the way we want, they left money on the table. And the gas system didn't perform the way we wanted. Gas production was down 85% in the Permian Basin, yet they made $11 billion in profits. This is a problem where will you underperform and it leads to death and destruction and damages, but doing so is profitable for you. That means there's a moral hazard in the markets and we have a pretty significant problem that needs intervention. You know, when I was campaigning, I used to always say we need to to move our workers because I think part of the Green New Deal and people have a lot of uncertainty about what that means Part of it is this transition to renewable energy and looking towards a future where we are carbon neutral or even carbon negative, but it's also a just transition for workers. And so I was always like, we should be moving the, the workers from the pipelines to the turbines and building the turbines, not only within you know Texas, but even at the, the coastline. And you know when we have the wind energy, that's the other thing, like when the wind is blowing in West Texans, that might not be at the optimal time or peak energy time that we need. But perhaps if the wind is blowing at the coastal, uh, on the coastal front, you can have that that matching of when peak energy usage, um, when you need to meet the demand, I should say. So any thoughts there? Absolutely. I mean, I would say, but you can go from oil and gas pipelines to hydrogen pipelines or carbon dioxide pipelines for capture and sequestration of CO2. So they don't even have to leave the pipeline world. Pipelines will still be relevant. And I think we need to build a lot of stuff. So there's a lot of job creation. And just coming back to the Green New Deal, you said something very important, which no one really knows what the Green New Deal is because it's not actually legislation. It is a policy brand or concept. 
which includes several things like decarbonizing the energy system. It also means modernizing the grid. And after winter storm Uri and the failures of February, I'd say we could do some modernization of the grid. It also means just transition for the workers, like you said. And so there are a lot of things in Green New Deal, but there's also a lot of vagueness because we're not even there yet. We're dealing with infrastructure things and debt limits and that kind of stuff. So I'd like us to get to Green New Deal because for me, it looks like a multi-trillion dollar investment opportunity that will make the energy system cleaner, more reliable, and in the process, create a lot of jobs, and a lot of the jobs will be high-paying jobs in new places or places that need the economic revitalization. So I don't really know what the Green New Deal is, but it sounds pretty good to me, actually. It's not saying, let's go backwards in time, let's go forwards in time. Okay, I'm open to that. I'd rather prepare for the future. So I'd like to see some more details, and I think if Texas positions itself the right way, we get a lot of those benefits because it's still so much easier to build a wind farm or a solar farm in Texas than it is in California or New York. And so we stand to position uh, in position to benefit handsomely from this. And I would like to see Texas seize this opportunity rather than sort of disparage it and not be part of the design and then lose out on the economic benefits from it. Right, exactly. And I used to say that in uh, Colleen, where I campaigned for, you know, over four years, I only had three precincts in Colleen, but I used to think what a missed opportunity because you have men and women coming out of Fort Hood. Fort Hood is the largest renewable energy project in the army. They, they've have things, uh, contracts in place to move them towards uh, carbon neutrality. And you have this workforce coming out of Fort Hood that is either having to leave the area to find reasonable work, or they have to settle for service industry jobs or retail jobs when we have this magnificent workforce that could be immediately retrofitted for the renewable energy economy right here in central Texas. I think this is true. So I think we got to do a lot of uh, workforce opportunities on this, which is there are still going to be jobs in energy. In fact, there will be more jobs in energy. And as we lose oil and gas workers, which are happening today, the layoffs are still happening, by the way. So we're having massive layoffs in oil and gas and we're having massive growth in wind and solar. It'd be great to find a way to help people transition. I'm actually launching an online course in January on energy technology and policy to help people with this career transition because my my inbox every day I get people announcing job openings and they can't find talent. They're asking me, do I have students who are ready? And meanwhile, I'm getting those from people who've just been laid off from oil and gas. So it's like some sort of labor market dislocation happening right now where the clean energy industry is having trouble finding the employees they need and the traditional energy industry's employees who are now available are having trouble either culturally or um, intellectually making a leap because they don't maybe know that new material. So I'm trying to create this online course to help fix that. And we expect to have a couple hundred students. We'll probably do this a couple of times. But this is just one small piece of the solution, which is job training, certifications, credentialing, people who are really good at the job, have great technical skills, maybe have great mechanical and other skills. We need those skills in these other sectors as well. And that's where the hiring will be. And if we look at what it takes to decarbonize the American society or the Texas economy, and as you said earlier, go carbon negative even, which is important, that means a massive build-out, doubling or tripling of the power sector in the United States in the next two to three decades, which is a lot of things we're going to be building. It means a lot of hydrogen, a lot of carbon capture. It means a lot of things. And those jobs tend to pay more and are very good for the economy beyond those immediate jobs in terms of what they enable for other infrastructure. So I think this is a great opportunity in Texas should and could have some of this because of our resource and that workforce and we know how to do project development and financing but we can also make it difficult for ourselves by getting in the way politically and that's kind of where we are now and i wish we'd kind of get off of that and really look to seize the opportunity that's really where i am but the workers get caught in the middle of the politics and the opportunity and we need to make sure politics is sort of at least doing no harm but maybe even doing some help on this we're facilitating the trainings and that kind of thing so love everything you're saying about that 
That was Dr. Michael Weber with a fascinating conversation with our very own Julie Oliver, showing how the Texas energy industry has a ton of problems, but there's also some great opportunities. That's it for this week. Special thanks to our producer, Chris Moser, our sponsor, Ground Game Texas. See you again next Monday afternoon at 5 here on KPFD 90.1, Houston's community station.